I just realized last night that it's the 20th anniversary this year of Fellowship coming out. So he's reading the books the same time I read them 20 years ago. Really? That's actually super cool. I was a little bit older than him, but it was 20 years ago exactly this year that I read them. Wow. How old would you have been? 14? 12. 12. Yeah, you look older than that. I do. It's a blessing and a curse. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. So did you make him all the way through uh, the whole whole Lord of the Rings trilogy? Did I? Yeah. Yeah. I did. No, uh, that like I loved reading as a kid, read a lot, and I, I don't read as much anymore, but I read a ton then. And so I cranked through all three of them before summer, like before July of that wow. year. Like I started kind of, I think, yeah, I mean, I, I cranked through them pretty fast. And then I loaned them to my best friend to read on vacation, uh, got him excited about it. And so... Uh, all in anticipation of you know, the movie the looks really cool coming yeah. out. I saw the trailer and then my dad was like, oh, yeah, I know Lord of the Rings. You know, here's my set. Like he went into the garage and dug up. He had a box set from college that, you know, he had for one of his classes in college. So he's like, here you go. Wow, a box set. You know, I wonder if uh, we might even have the same box set. I've got it right here. My son's not reading this one because it's... Oh, no. No, mine's different. Mine's different. No. Yeah, those look pretty well worn. Mine is... This is good radio right here. <laughs> it's a good thing you're not recording yet, right? Oh, we're recording. Oh, my Oh, God. yours is very shiny. Yes, very shiny. So I had to have a replacement book because I think one of my kids stole Fellowship of the Ring. So I had to buy a new copy. There you go. It is my favorite Lord of the Ring book. The Fellowship Fellowship of the Ring? Yeah. He was was asking me which my favorite was. He's, I mean, literally just started uh, Two Towers yesterday. So, but he asked me which was my favorite. And I said, you know what? There's just too many different things I like in each of them to say which is my overall favorite. Cop out. Plus, it's Cop been 20 years out. since I read them, so I need to <laughs> figure that out. But I didn't want to tell him that. See, for me, they get more and more elvish as the series goes on. Mm. And all that elven and all those poems and all those songs got a little bit boring mm. for me. When I was a 12, 14-year-old reading them, I wanted the action. I wanted the Balrog. I wanted the <laughs> Wraith Riders. I wanted it all. See, I loved I loved the the scouring of the Shire. Big fan of the scouring of the Shire. Love the way Return You're of the King. You're such Land. a liar. Dead serious. No, it's That's one the of my boring part of the book. No, I loved it. I I am a big fan of the scouring of the Shire. I really appreciated it, even as a twelve year old, Paul. That's that says so much, so much about you. You should. I mean, this goes against type for me, though, because <laughs> yeah. you know everything wasn't, uh, or it made it go on longer. And usually, yeah. I'm like, all right, pick up the pace. Let's wrap this thing up. Yeah, that is you, and and I think that it just shows that as as social media has crept into your life, your attention span has it's rotted the brain. It has rotted the brain. 
Yeah, I, I I will say I have a slight, I have a slight enough memory that Two Towers might have been my favorite because I just really enjoyed the sort of the the chase sequence and uh, the way it jumped back and f- it started jumping back and forth between the different parties and the Battle of Helm's Deep and yeah, 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 yeah. So I got to say. The two towers kind of depressed me because I never liked seeing castles get conquered or anything like that. And Helm's mm. Deep was a big, you know, castle and it felt really depressing to me. But I loved the cave. Like I remember in the in the book that wasn't in the movie, there was this cave that was just filled with gems, just these beautiful gems. And it was really cool. I thought that is a cave I want to go into because Legolas, Legolas was actually very impressed with the cave from what I remember. Thought it was beautiful. So then, you know, in The Hobbit, when he hits the treasure chamber to talk to Smog. Oh yeah, you were digging that. Yeah, I'm. I am. I have a lot of liberal progressive in me, but when it comes <laughs> to treasure, I am all capitalist. I want treasure. Treasure. <laughs> You turn into the the master of Lake Town, <laughs> the Lord oh. of the Mountain. Oh. Smaug the Terrible. I tell you, the master of Lake Town. That was the one of the worst things about the Hobbit movies, and there's a lot contending in in those Hobbit movies. I will say, I'm rewatching them with Jeremiah right now because I told him we'll start watching the movies as you read the books. So he finished the Hobbit first. So we're watching through the Hobbit movies as he's reading the Lord of the Rings. I'm enjoying them more watching them with an 11-year-old because you're, I'm being less critical and I'm just enjoying sort of the adventure of it all. And I've enjoyed it more the second time around because I did not care for it that much the first time. It's it's really terrible. It really is. I I think you need to watch and really we're sort of delaying the inevitable start of this podcast. But but you should watch the original Rankin-Bass um, cartoon of The Hobbit. I have watched those. It's really good. Even as a kid, I did not like those. It's really good. The the column is really creepy. I mean, not not the um, not the Return of the King one because that's not very good. But the original Hobbit, John Huston was Gandalf. Pretty darn cool. The big head goblin underneath the the misty mountains, very cool. The spiders, super awesome. Hmm. I might have to go. I don't know. I just really, even as a kid, really didn't like those. Very. Much. I can sing all the songs for you right now. Yeah. Well, I'm good. Let's uh, let's Rose move it on here. I think it's about time to start the show. On. That's our cue. You know what? I may not have seen The Hobbit. I may have just watched the Lord of the Rings ones. Yeah, no. So you got to see The Hobbit. You got to. The see Lord of the Rings it. ones were so bad. The rotoscope animation for the orcs, I hated. Oh, see, it. yeah, you're thinking of something totally different, actually, because that, that was that like was like a Boschko production or something like that. Yeah, so you've got the, the Rankin Bass um, yeah. animated versions. I'm looking at it now. All right, I might check those out. All, All right. right, all right. Here we go.
What is up, my nerds? Welcome inside Pop Culture with Fanboy and Know-It-All. I'm Jake. I am hot. Welcome back inside our crazy brains. I'm physically hot. I am not... (laughs) That didn't make it better. I am not handsome. Do you mean your temperature? Yes, it's very hot in this room that I am sitting in. It is very hot. I've been talking for the last 20 minutes with no fan, no open window. I am. I may literally die before the end of this podcast. I did forget that Paul was. He told me this at the beginning when we started chatting, as a really big wink, wink, hint, hint. I'm dying in here. Can we go quickly? <laughs> Let's go. Fifteen minutes of random nothingness. Melt. Now we're starting the show. <laughs> You're welcome, Paul. We're a big, happy, dysfunctional family. In two separate places. And that's what we're talking about. A big, happy, dysfunctional family who are worried about being in two separate places or maybe excited about it. Wow. That was really good. That was almost like a professional segue there. Almost there. And in in this case, one of the individuals in the movie we're talking about doesn't want to be with family. Paul, in this case, (laughs) in the podcast. And in this, and, and some of the dysfunctional family really do want to stay together, and that's me. You know, I'm, I'm the one advocating that we don't have to do this virtually, that Paul can come enjoy my air-conditioned house. And he's like, no, I'd rather melt into a puddle in my office than spend another minute in person with you, Jake. <laughs> so are you saying that you're the, you're the anxious father forcing his whole family to go on a big cross-country road trip in this scenario? <laughs> Literally. And I'm the pouty teenage girl in yeah. the back seat. I didn't say it. <laughs> you may have heard it. I may have been thinking it. It may be true, but I didn't say it. <laughs> That's right. If you didn't guess it already, we're talking about Netflix's new film called The Mitchells versus the Machines, brought to you by those who brought you movies such as Spider Man into the Spider Verse and the Lego movie. So. You know, I was on that joint. <laughs> like I, I, you Paul, didn't even have to watch this movie for you to say that you loved it. Exactly, I knew it was going to be a, a nine and a half out of ten. Just when I heard about that, it was crazy to me, and it actually it, this made me a little bit happy. I work really hard to keep my digital footprint small these days, and to confuse all the algorithms that want to serve me ads. And it's a joy to me when I start getting ads for companies in India and other countries that completely don't apply to me. So I was really surprised when – though I was still surprised when I somebody told me about this film like days before it came out on Netflix. And I realized I have not heard a single peep about this, not gotten a single ad and this is squarely in my wheelhouse. I love Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verse. I love the Lego movie. They're – some of my top 100, top 20 movies of all time. Yes, we even had a big old discussion about your top movies of all time, and both of them made it, right? Both of them made it. And so I was also, I was, I was very pleasantly surprised to be surprised by this film because they couldn't advertise it to me because I hide from them so well. <laughs> Bragging on myself aside... Uh, yeah, there was no way I was going to give this movie less than a nine out of 10 and that still held up. Yeah. We'll talk about why, but that still held true for me. What else are we talking about today, Jake? We're also talking about this God of mischief named Loki 
so another character Paul probably resonates with when he thinks about me. <laughs> All the mischievous ways I keep Paul on his toes and away from his dinner and sweating in his study. Loki, Jake, one and the same, really. Basically, me and Tom Hiddleston. We both have luscious dark black locks. <laughs> if Paul gets to say he's hot, then I can compare my hair to Tom Hiddleston's. <laughs> this podcast has a very strange vibe to it. <laughs> and of course, would you say like a David Fincher vibe? <laughs> I would say exactly like a David Fincher. Okay, good. Yeah, that's because I heard that's what they were going for with Loki. Oh. Sort of a David Fincher vibe. So I really wanted this podcast to feel really angsty and murderous. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> it may get there. <laughs> Paul, as the more Paul heats up, it's like my own little version of do the right thing where, you know. Yeah, exactly. I'm yeah. feeling angst, more angsty and murderous by the minute. <laughs> and of course, if we can get to the most least important thing, it's the way we love to wrap up every single little show of ours. But before then, before we get to Loki, before Paul turns into the Wicked Witch of the West or the East, I don't remember which one. It is the West. Of the West. Uh, we're going to talk about Netflix's <laughs> The Mitchells versus The Machines. I'm going to hate editing this episode because I can – sometimes, you know, you don't hear yourself when you're yeah. congested. Yeah. And so you just kind of live your life. Right now, I'm really hearing my congestion. And a lot of times, I will, I'll come into a show not thinking I'm congested. Then I'll listen to it and as I edit it. I'm like, oh my gosh, I sound horrible. <laughs> now I can hear it. I'm like, I'm going to sound awful. You don't sound I'm that bad. I'm so sorry to all of you whose earballs are being tortured by this. Yeah, you don't sound that bad. I mean, no worse than normal, really. So that's the thing I'm sensitive about. So thanks, thanks, Paul. <laughs> no worse than normal. I'm like, wow, I'm really noticing. I sound awful. He's like, no worse than normal. No, I- <laughs> about the same, par for the course. No, no, I can barely tell that you're congested. Barely. Barely. Well, that makes for good. I, Paul has asked me this question because we've had to do like hour-long road trips up to see screeners and stuff like that. And we've talked about you know, how it would be to be on a much longer road trip together and uh, whether or not we'd feel like we had to feel, fill the silence as introverts or whether we could talk. And you know, the Mitchells versus the Machines is really just add two more people. And that's Paul and I going on a road trip. Across it's really country. true. It is really true. It's almost a biopic, really. Yeah, with murderous robots. I mean, the road trip itself is dangerous enough, but then you add in the murderous robots, and it adds a whole new level of complexity onto it. Who who doesn't want a vacation with murderous robots? That's what who I'm asking. doesn't? Who doesn't? I've had a lot of vacations that would have been a lot better if there were murder robots chasing me. You know what? It, it, it goes back to what is, I know, your favorite movie. 2001 Mad Max Space Fury Road. No, it's it's 2001 a Space Odyssey because that's the whole plot of the movie. Hey, that wasn't even top 10 for you. You no longer get to mention it on this podcast. <laughs> Band. Paul, why don't you summarize the Mitchells versus the Machines for us real quick? Mitchells versus the Machines is about, we'll start off with the Mitchells. 
the Mitchells are a very nice family that is having a few little problems, especially dad and daughter. Uh, the daughter's name, who I forget now, Katie. Katie, right? Katie I have Mitchell. A daughter named Katie. <laughs> exactly. Yes, that's very nice. Uh, they <laughs> used to get along very well together, but now not so much. Katie is going to go to film school pretty soon. And she doesn't have a lot in common with her very uh, rustic, tools-oriented dad. She keeps trying to show him movies that she makes. He's not interested. He keeps trying to show her his stuffed mallards. She's not interested. They just aren't getting along. They have a big blowout over dinner one day when, uh, when they struggle over this laptop computers and it falls to the ground. Dad Mitchell feels terrible about it, and so he decides, as as many dads probably do, that the solution to making his daughter happy and like him more is to go on a multi-day, thousands upon thousands of mile road trip to take her to school, their last shot to be together as a family. Total dad move. It goes just about as well as you would expect, but meanwhile... Meanwhile, the creator of this uh, this robotic AI called Pal. You it's know, like a, you know Amazon's Alexa mixed with Facebook, with with a little bit of Apple thrown in there, a right? Apple sprinkled yeah, in exactly. So he has designed this AI that was supposed to be this great digital assistant, and indeed it was. But he is introducing the new version of it. And his old version gets a little bit out of joint. Somehow the whole mess sort of triggers triggers this singularity moment where the robots officially take over the world. And it's led by Pal, voiced by Olivia Coleman of all people, um, taking over the entire world and throwing all of us humanoids into these little boxes. Um, because she feels rejected. Because she feels rejected. This is what happens when you spurn your first love. It's it's like a fatal attraction story, really. So you have these these two stories that combine in this road trip because all of a sudden the Mitchells, as dysfunctional as they are, they seem to be the only people who miraculously escape the robotic apocalypse. And now it's up to them to save the world. I, what I really enjoyed about it, beyond the fact that Phil Lord and Christopher Miller have done it again and created a movie that just totally gets me. <laughs> Are you just going to spend this entire podcast just saying, oh, I love this movie. I love this movie. Pretty much because it was great, Paul. I loved it. Nine out of ten. Nine out of ten. You're up towards nine and a half. I'm just giving, <laughs> I'm giving the rating right now. I got to rewatch it. You know what? The rest was, of this episode is just going to be me rewatching it. <laughs> it was a great movie. But now now that we skip to the very end, what we usually do at the very end in your rating, I um, have to ask, did you like it better than Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verse? I did not like it more than Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verse. But I, I would I, – it felt like it was in the ballpark of – the Lego movie and, you know, within striking distance of Spider-Man into the Spider-Verse. And that for me was, you know, 
that's pretty good when I came in with expectations as high as I did. I, I really was kind of, I was my, I realized my expectations were so high that I was setting myself up for failure and maybe I got them back down low enough that it was great again. But <laughs> man, my wife afterwards was like, are you okay? I've never heard you laugh out loud that much in a movie. I was like, I don't know if that's true, but also I did laugh out loud a whole lot watching this film. I'm just picturing you sitting down preparing to watch. I just picture you being like this five-year-old before Christmas morning. (laughs) I can't wait. Pretty close. (laughs) Basically like the screaming goat. You know, it, it hits so many of the right notes for me. Everything from the way it playfully sends up meme culture uh, with not just inside the story making jokes about it, but the way it actually used that as a part of sort of breaking the fourth wall in a weird, unique sort of way. Uh, the way it just played around with the visuals on screen as it told the story, the way that gave you access into sort of the 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 mind of the main character and Katie and sort of the playful humor of it. I just, that, that conceit really worked for me. It was, yeah, it was very nicely done. They had some really great moments throughout the whole thing, I think, you know, and I, 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 I can't get over how much I really enjoyed hearing Olivia Coleman as this evil, but not really totally evil AI. You know, I thought she made a tremendous villain. I thought she was fantastic. Yeah, you have a memorable villain that allows the film to make a very gentle social commentary without it feeling preachy. You know, it's very sort of, it feels very folksy in the way that it sort of acknowledges the reality of the social construct that it's commenting on. Yeah. While also eviscerating it at multiple different points in very endearing and delightful ways like the i i was i had to say i was just impressed with the tone that the movie was able to strike because that was one of the things i was worried about with my high expectations was hey it's doing an apocalypse film is it going to get too dark is it going to get kind of too heavy into the social commentary or is it going to lean back so far away from that that there's you know not much emotional weight to it the way they're able to tell this sort of well, tell a straight up family story yeah. while also making these commentary notes, while also sending up mean culture, while also making a road trip apocalypse movie, which has been done to death. <laughs> like how many road apocalypse road trip movies have been made? A lot. And yet it manages to do it in a way that although it moves pretty fast, it didn't feel as rushed yeah. Uh, and, and like it didn't feel like it was rushing through the family relationships at the same time. Yeah. No, I and I couldn't agree with you more. I mean, in 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 a way, I think that the um, the father daughter story really makes the movie work. I mean, that's really the engine that propels this movie and and makes it something that you you really enjoy. I mean, it it, it has that heart. It has that that center emotional core that is really, really resonant. But all of the other stuff, all the meta commentary that they have, all of the jokes that they have surrounding that meta commentary, it really worked as just this garnishment, right? It was just 
really delightful. It's like it's like a good pepper steak with with some good sauce on the top of it, some mango chutney sauce. The steak was perfectly cooked. The mango chutney made it all work, I thought. It was just really fun. It was really fun. And one of the things that I loved about it is they had so many great throwaway lines for how humanity sort of operates today. You know, it it, it got to the core of, of sometimes how we're so absorbed by the ease and comfort and 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 yeah, just the just the comfort that we really enjoy, right? And our entertainment culture. You have you have these robots who come down to this quickie mart and they come and they sort of say, oh, we're going to be great. The a direct quote from one of the robots is, we have food and entertainment for you to enjoy in our human fun pods. Who here likes fun? And of course, some guy says, I like fun. Oh, I really <laughs> love fun. <laughs> and who doesn't like fun? But it does... I think it's a good commentary on sometimes how, um, particularly in, a, in in the United States, we do tend to like our entertainment and our fun maybe a little bit too much. And it makes us overlook some of the concerns we might have. And that's ultimately probably the biggest downside of the movie is that you sort of feel guilty for sitting there watching and enjoying <laughs> the movie as much as you do because you have this thought of, yeah, I'd, I'd probably get in that pod to watch this movie again. <laughs> I'd condemn, I'd resign myself to a life of being launched into space by robots, <laughs> watching these films, mindlessly scrolling my Netflix queue. Exactly. Ironically, the movie plays on Netflix. So there's meta upon meta upon meta. It's it's pretty delightful. Yeah, it was, uh, it was nice of it to, you know, let it, uh, Netflix, I would say, it doesn't really skewer Netflix. It really points its finger more no. at things like YouTube, no. Amazon, Apple, Google, those sorts of things. Right, right. Uh, it doesn't it doesn't bite the hand that feeds it. But when you think about sort of our entertainment culture the way it is in 2021, I mean, Netflix has kind of defined it, right? The, it the front runner. Binging of of staying on your couch for hours upon hours upon hours watching the you know the very same show and and it gives you so much stuff that it incentivizes you to just stay put right so it it, it was it was very clever I thought and I, I do want to give a shout out to two specific scenes uh, and I, I'll, I imagine there might be a scene or two you want to give a shout out to I I. It's so hard to describe it in a way that doesn't feel like I'm underselling it. So I'll just say the mall sequence was just spot on for me. Uh, it felt like I was I, I hearkened a little bit to the mall sequence in Stranger Things, mm-hmm. uh, except I, I like this even better. Sort of the nostalgia and the darkness, the creepiness of the mall, and the way this played with that and Furby's. Mm. Just, oh, the Furbies, the Furbies, and the 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 piece in the mall with the Roombas absolutely slayed me. <laughs> I just the comic, the comedic timing of that was just perfect for me. Yeah, the, those those were pretty great. I, I got to go back to talk about the Furbies a little bit because yeah. I have a story to share about the Furbies. Yes. So you were probably not coherent when Furbies were a thing, right? Oh, they were definitely a thing when I was a kid. They may have been before then, but no, I, I, okay. I vividly remember the commercials. Okay. So so my wife 
as she is wont to do, she tends to get on some of these these consumerist bandwagons, and mm. she was all about the Furbies when they first came out. And we got a Furby. We got a Furby. And it was exactly like what the movie portrays. They have their own secret language that they speak until they start learning their own. Um, and she was really trying to educate it to to make it speak the <laughs> language, right? But you know, Furbies—they're kind of a one-trick pony. They're not—they don't have a lot of playability. No to much, them. not much depth. Exactly, especially when you're a grown-up person. So eventually, the Furby wound up in a box underneath our house. It had been there for ten, fifteen, years, <laughs> right? And I. I went down there to to get another box, and I must have hit it or something, although I don't recall doing it. And in one of the boxes nearby, I heard the Furby start talking to me. Started talking to me. And yes, the, the creepiness of the Furby scene was totally spot on to that moment, honestly. And the, the script writing for the subtitles for what they were actually saying was gold. <laughs> so gold. I loved it so much. And then, of course, there's a scene uh, towards towards the end of the film, won't spoil anything, but with the mom. And I think, and you know exactly, but Maya Rudolph is a gem, but what they did with the music and the choreography of that scene, like that sc- scratched every itch. The action, the comedy, the the music the like, nature of a mom the nature of the mom oh my word that was absolutely incredible like i loved it for the comedic effect and i loved it for the action effect it i mean that was worth those two scenes alone would have made this movie worth the price of a, of a subscription for me <laughs> see for me the the thing that always got me laughing and i don't know why was all the robots confusing the dog the family dog <laughs> big dog big dog big dog Loaf of bread. I, I just loved it. Every <laughs> single time they did that, I just, I just laughed. But, but for me, I mean, and you know this, we've talked about this plenty before. Um, I am a sucker for, for father-child stories, and this had a big one in it. And, and the way that they unwrapped the story slowly, you know, that there's a little tiny moose that is a big feature piece of Oof. this of this story, right? And 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 we know that the father gave Katie the moose and Katie just doesn't care about the moose anymore. But then the story starts unraveling, you know, it starts you start to see why the moose is such a big deal to the dad. And I'm not going to spoil anything because it's no, it's, it's actually it's beautiful, it's so wonderfully done. So wonderfully done. And and you see just kind of through that moose, you see the sacrifices that the dad has made. You see the love that he has for his little girl. And all of a sudden, it, you understand so much more about this relationship. And not only how it went awry and why, but how they can sort of come together on a different sort of level. And I thought it was really just very sweet. Yeah. I For a move, and this is what Phil Lord and... Christopher Miller do, even though they didn't direct this one, they just produced it. Uh, they they somehow find the way in the midst of these absolutely ridiculous films and premises to to put a heart into these stories that really socks you. 
I mean, with Spider-Man and the Spider-Verse, what they do with the father-son story, even the uncle-nephew relationship, even, heck, man, even with uh, Kingpin and his wife, and Kit, <laughs> like, the gut punches in Spider-Man and the Spider-Verse, that also includes Spider-Pig and Spider-Ham. You know, it's like, it's insane what they're able to do. And I, I, I'll gush too, I've gushed too much already. The Mitchell yeah. versus the Machines, it was a huge win for me. Came out of left field. Two thumbs up. And nine point two for you? I yeah. 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 All right. I mean, ask me tomorrow it could be nine point seven. Wow. So no, I, nine, nine, nine point two is great. 9.2. I won't uh, I won't go that high. I'll be the relative curmudgeon on this, even though I really enjoyed it. It it also, you know, it didn't work on every level for me. Um, but it was still a really good movie with really good messages. The heart behind it was fantastic. It was super funny. I would I would give it an 8.5, and I would say that I liked it better than Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verse. Sure. I mean, we know you can be a bit of a snob when it comes to superhero <laughs> movies. <laughs> but Spider-Ham didn't do it for you, I guess. I loved Spider-Ham. What that movie needed more was more Spider-Ham. Okay, got it. Not enough Spider-Ham for Exactly. Got it. The Mitchells versus the Machines. It's available on Netflix right now. We, If you've already seen it or if it's in your queue, we'd love to hear what you think about it. You can catch up with us to chat about it. Obviously, I will be all there to talk about it. On Twitter, my handle is at Jake underscore Roberson. I'm at AC Paul. Did you have something else to say there, Paul? You know, I I did want to just bring up one other thing for you, yeah. Jake. Hit it. Did you notice all the 2001 A Space Odyssey references in that movie? Noted and appreciated for their knowledge of the cinematic experience <laughs> and history of the silver screen. <laughs> so <laughs> this is a real tangent, but apparently there were, a, there, there were Stanley Kubrick references all over that movie. I've said before, there's a good film inside 2001 A Space Odyssey, and Kubrick just didn't want to, you know, spend his time fleshing it out. He, my goodness, he oh, just made goodness. a third of a good film. You know, I can't even talk to you right now. <laughs> now it's time for Loki. Don't you just feel, Paul, when you're recording, when you're locked in the zone and pop culture with fanboy and knowing all, you can feel it. You can feel the glorious purpose beating inside of your heart and your soul. Did I just drop episode one's title for Loki in the midst of a very organic sentence? Yeah, I did. So organic. Oh, so natural, Jake. Amazing. Paul bet me I couldn't do it, but I did it. It made <laughs> sense. It worked. I don't uh, know. I think I won the bet. Yeah. Episode one, season one of Loki. Rumors have it that they're already going to work on season two, even before season one's all the way out. Well, you got to figure. I mean, he's he's one of the most compelling villains in all the MCU universe, right? So yeah. everybody loves Loki even though he's a hateable scumbag. He's a very likable, hateable scumbag. Yeah. And, you he's know, like, he, 
he may be dead. Vegas Raiders. You know, you love to hate him. Yeah, but you also, unlike the Raiders, you also kind of like him. <laughs> there's, that is no, true. there's no part yeah, of me yeah. that likes the Raiders at all. No, that is that is very true. Kind of more I, like the Patriots. Yeah. Like where I was like, I have to begrudgingly admit that they were an incredible dynasty, even though I was tired of them being an incredible dynasty. So I hated them for it, but I was also like, but you're kind of great at it. So, okay, that's off to you. Yeah. I find that now that Tom Brady is gone from the Patriots, I like the Patriots a lot more. And I dislike the Buccaneers. Bucks a whole lot. Yeah. Yeah. No, fair. That's same for me. I kind of liked the Bucks before he got – maybe a better comparison would be to like the Golden State Warriors dynasty. Oh, yeah. Where like people were hating them because they were winning all the time. But Steph Curry and Draymond Green are just – so charismatic and goofy and charming in their own ways that you're like, when you see Steph Curry dancing poorly after making an incredible shot, you're kind of like, Oh, (laughs) I kind of like those villains. You can, you can easily hate the golden state warriors, but you can't hate Steph Curry. No, it's, it's impossible. It's physically impossible. It has to be. So yeah, Loki Disney plus I the data shows from the data shows, I say, Disney tells us that Loki is their most watched premiere so far, at least in the MCU. That's actually fascinating because I thought WandaVision had a ton of buzz going into it. Did it, did it have any actual figures of how many people are actually watching it? I'll look that up as you give us a little uh, recap of episode one here. Set All, us right. Up here. All right. Episode one. The last time we saw Loki, he was dead. He was dead. Um, because he died in uh, in Avengers Infinity Wars. He was choked to death by Thanos, as you recall, and he did it before the, the actual blip, which meant that he was not coming back, except that in Avengers Endgame, they go back to 2012 and and do the little thing that was the first part of the Avengers movies. The Avengers go back in a different form to try to rewrite history, and there Loki is alive and well. And in the course of some weird stuff that happens involving Hulk not getting on an elevator, the Tesseract, the big MacGuffin of the movie, gets thrown down. Loki grabs it and zips off into space. The thing is, he zips off into time now, too. And as it turns out, it's totally illegal to do that. He did something against what is now called in Loki, the sacred timeline. There's an organization called the Time Variance Authority. Is that correct? That is correct. That is tracking the, the timekeepers. There's a group of people, three people called the time creepers who keep track of what should happen on this timeline, the sacred timeline. And if anyone veers off, they are variants and they must be captured. So they have a whole a whole organization, sort of the FBI of time, the Time Variance Authority that tracks these people down. They find Loki. They bring him back. Loki's very disappointed because none of his powers work. Um, and he's captured by by the TVA. But it turns out he is not necessarily going to get thrown in time prison or zapped off the face of, you know, infinity or whatnot. They need him to catch an even worse time criminal. And that's where the uh, that's where the rest of the uh, series tumbles from there. Or so we're told. Maybe yeah. it, maybe it'll tumble every which way but loose. 
Into madness, perhaps. Well, anytime you're talking about time travel, you're venturing into madness because it gets very difficult to figure out. Yeah. But this, this particular show doesn't seem to care. It doesn't care about making any sort of sense out of it. It just flies on into the face of time itself and just has a good old time doing it. Yeah, and this it sets it up to to deal with issues of free will. Uh, that was a very interesting and very stark line as Loki is being judged and kind of looking at uh, reviewing things with the Time Variance Authority, both the judge as well as with Mobius, played by Owen Wilson. Who is where, cool. Who was really good. Yes. Uh, you know, I, I love Owen Wilson. He is very funny. You have the moment where he tries to pin the crime on the Avengers – and you get the line saying, no, that was supposed to happen. This wasn't. And so they're like, wait a second, supposed to happen? That 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 implies knowledge of what happens later on the timeline. And so that's – and that things are supposed to happen. Or, you know, Mobius says, says to Loki, uh, you know, all the th- – you've – You've never, as you've done all the things you're supposed to do, you stayed within what you were supposed to do. And he's like, nobody, what? No, I do my own thing. He's like, yeah, not really. And so uh, you have this sense of the show really wanting to deal with this idea of predestination and free will, which is interesting when you think of what that can mean with a multiverse and different timelines. I, I will say I've long held this gray area in my own faith. When you think about an all-knowing God who knows the beginning and the end and also free will, like I get how that messes people up. But where I hold it is that there's an infinite number of alternate timelines that every decision branches off into. And he's aware of all the infinite number of timelines and I can journey and he knows how they all intersect. And, you know, I wander down those timelines watching the, the time variance authorities, little video showing the way alternate branches like as it's talking about the madness of the alternate branches, I was like, oh my gosh, they're like, that's like the beginnings of my theory. Yeah. Yeah. I've always kind of viewed it as sort of the pick your path to adventure. You know, those old books that you would flip and you would have all these alternate yeah. endings. Uh, that's the way I always sort of pictured it because there, it is sort of this, uh, this paradox and, and, you know, there are some other movies that sort of play around with the idea of actually jumping outside the, the, the actual timeline where it's possible to have free will and still have things come to where they're supposed to come. You know, Arrival sort of messed with that a little bit, but this movie or this TV show, I think that's one of the most intriguing things about it to me is that tension between free will and predestination, the plan that the time keepers want and the chaos that the God of mischief inherently brings. Ironically, you have Loki who actually says throughout the first episode how he wanted to take away people's free will for them to, you know, give them, you know, a sense of comfort. Free will was always sort of a bad thing, he thought, for most of humanity, most of, of, of sentient life. And he wanted to relieve them of that so that they could just do their thing. Um, but of course, he wants his own free will, which I found also kind of interesting. There's also the uh, the thing at play here 
that will be fascinating to watch how it it teases out is the fact that they give these hints that they know where the timeline is going. So certain things are supposed to happen and they're allowed to happen. And yet certain characters in the TVA seem surprised. And so it, like certain characters that seem to ha- be more senior, like at first glance, seem surprised when certain things do or do not show up uh, in or happen in certain ways or appear. Or yeah. Anyways, all that to say, who has this foreknowledge? How is that handed through the bureaucracy? I think that's an interesting thing we see in episode one: is the bureaucratic structure, which I loved. I loved the whole bureaucracy. That was hilarious. It was very artfully done. But I wonder if beyond just the humor and the art that it allowed the the show to explore in sort of this pseudo retro set like slash futuristic setting if maybe we'll i wonder if they're sort of setting the tva up to be slightly villainous so i wonder with the way they set up this bureaucracy in the way they kind of tease it out visually as well as structurally as loki makes his way through it and then the way they seem to indicate that there are some time the timekeepers maybe are the ones who can see what's supposed to happen and they dictate you know the judge says i dictate the dictations of the timekeepers. So I do what they tell me to do. And Mobius didn't seem to know that Loki would be there. He seemed to get that information sideways, not from the future. And so I almost kind of wonder if they're setting the TVA up to be a little bit more gray as far as whether they're good or bad, like whether them holding this sacred timeline and deciding what is supposed to happen is actually a good thing or a bad thing. Yeah, because the way they really juxtaposed it to what Loki said about you know when he has his speech from the Avengers where he's talking about unburdening people of their free will, there's this sense that the TVA is not a huge fan of free will. Yeah, and so perhaps the TVA is going to be more villainous, or at least certain levels, maybe not all the bureaucrats, but certain levels of the TVA might be more sinister than. Yeah. You know, we think at first. Absolutely. And I think that that's actually fleshed out a little bit more in in episode two, just to let you know. Um, oh, look at you uh, get yeah. an advanced copy. Yeah, I got an advanced you copy. Jerk. I'm, yeah. You jerk. You didn't share it with me? Where do you get all this stuff? You got to get me on these lists. <laughs> so, but it does, it does sort of flesh that out a little bit more. And I okay. do think that it's, it is, it is fascinating because you have this tension between order and chaos or going by the plan in free will. You know, I think that, that there's, there's a lot of inherent tension because I think we can see the good and the bad on both of those things. And, and in some ways it feels like it's very fitting um, that it's in Loki's show. Um, one of the things, uh, here's a little spoiler alert. And one of the things that you'll hear actually in, in season two is that he has a secret or episode two, he has a secret that he knows that not every bad guy is all bad and not every good guy is all good. And so you have this, not only this, this temporal tension between free will and order, but you have this moral tension between good and bad and, and sort of this idea of, of you're always, it's hard to define these things. And I do think that, that just looking at, at kind of where Disney might want to take the Marvel Cinematic Universe, 
it may turn in hard to the multiverse idea because it gives them so many narrative possibilities that a single that a single timeline just doesn't allow for. Um, so you kind of think that Loki might win this one. I I think he has to. I mean, if we're going to get more seasons of it, and <laughs> Loki because he's supposed to be dead, he's kind of a thing. But also, uh, he's such a likable. You know, the character has long been very loved by fans as played by Tom Hiddleston. So, you know, they've gotten rid of him before with certain actors that were also big fan favorites. But Mm -hmm. we'll see what they do with that with Loki. Uh, Circling back, Loki uh, had 890,000 U.S. households for the, the Wednesday premiere. And previous to that, Falcon and the Winter Soldier had bested WandaVision when it pulled in 759,000 households. And WandaVision had 655,000 households. Interesting. And that's just on the premiere night, right? So probably people who checked out... First day viewership, correct. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, interesting. Interesting. And it is true. I think that Loki... Really, people just can't get enough of the guy as as embodied by Tom Hiddleston. I think that that the great thing about Tom Hiddleston is that he he really has become sort of the new Alan Rickman, right? Alan uh, Rickman, the famous yeah. evildoer from Die Hard, but he might be best known for Snape right. uh, in the Harry Potter movies. He has a he always had a certain ability to convey this tension within himself um, because he was such a good actor. And I think Hiddleston does the very same thing in, in Loki in, in a certain way, because throughout the movies, he's been playing with, is he good? Is he bad? Is he mostly bad, but kind of good? Um, it, to watch his evolution and his backtracks and, and just how the characters moved throughout the the MCU has been pretty fascinating, and one of the under, uh, the other interesting things about this movie that I'm or the TV show that I'm really excited to see um, is sort of that narrative about whether Loki, as bad as he is, is there certain redemption possible for him? You know, and what does that look like? <laughs> because in in a way, you could argue spiritually, Loki's a little like all of us. I mean, you think about about Loki as being sort of this rebel against what his plan was, um, and I think that all of us can can have those rebellious moments in our own lives where we want to where we want to control what we do. We want our selfish desires to supersede what we know that we should be doing for the world around us, and so you have that tension. Um, within us all that I think is embodied so well by by the Loki character that we've come to see. And to watch that be sort of developed through this this multi-episode season will be even more rewarding, I hope, than what we've seen from him in the movies. That's, for me, where the tension comes in as well, in that I hope for that. But now with these short six to eight episode seasons that Disney Plus has been doing, the first two I've felt have promised and initiated with a lot of tension and then failed for me to ultimately deliver on all of that tension and to resolve it in 
meaningful ways. I felt like they really sort of abandoned the storyline for Bucky in uh, at least in a meaningful way in Falcon and the Winter Soldier. And I thought they sort of short, short armed the finale in WandaVision as well. Like there were some moments, but it felt like with both Falcon and the Winter Soldier and WandaVision that both of those series in these compact six to eight episode runs spent a lot of time, fleshed out a lot of nuance early on, but then fell to sort of the big budget action sequences at the end and tried to cram a whole lot into the final episode or two. And so I'm worried about that with Loki because, again, we have an episode that feels like a very slow burn with episode one of Loki season one as he's kind of making his way through the TVA. It's not this – He's going in through a line physically. Yeah, it literally (laughs) slows it down by having him maze his way through uh, (laughs) the the line with the little stretchy rope that you would find at the DMV. And so it's – it has me excited and nervous all at the same time. Yeah, I I get that. And I think that, that one of the one of the sins, if you will, that the MCU is committing now is, and it's maybe an un- unavoidable sin, is they want to keep this going for as long as possible. And so every single one of these shows needs to set up part of what is to come in the MCU as a whole. And because of that, it's hard to make a satisfying standalone story when it's trying to do so much. That said, I, I've been on record on this podcast kind of wishing that, that initially wishing that the MCU ended with, you know, Endgame or with the Spider-Man movie that came after that, mm-hmm. or, you know, just that tight story that had such a satisfying ending. That was just perfect. And I, was really trepidatious about what was to come in the MCU because the the first part of the MCU was just so satisfying. I did not understand how they could they could top that. I don't think they're topping it. But I tell you what, the the stories that we've seen in in especially WandaVision and Loki have been creative enough, yeah. way off the beaten path of what I was expecting to give me hope. It might not be the MCU repeated. And frankly, I don't want to see the MCU that we have already seen repeated. The creativity that we're seeing in these stories is really gratifying to me. And I'm, I'm grateful that they're, they're leaning on these superhero characters, but telling stories that I haven't seen before. And I like that. No, that's fair. And the, the, the fact that they are taking swings and, taking risks and actually succeeding in most ways uh, is, is good and encouraging in that regard and sort of speaks to something we've said before when we were looking ahead to what the future phases, what the future phases could hold is that they've really earned our trust at this point. So, you know, trust the process as they say in Philadelphia for the (laughs) 76ers. Right. And, uh, so that's where, all right, you know, maybe I'll hold my breath about whether Loki's going to become the next, it's not going to be the next Daredevil series right. for me. Which we you loved. That, which I loved and you loved and so many people really enjoyed and loved as well. And then Netflix canceled it. And well, and it had a really satisfying arc. Like I, yeah. that, I was actually, to your point about the, how the, the Tony Stark, Steve Rogers 
arc ended, that was a great arc for Matt Murdock in the Daredevil series. But it didn't concern itself so much with the bigger picture, and that was part of what made it great. It acknowledged that it lived inside this other universe where an event happened in New York City, but it it allowed itself to be concerned with the facts on the ground and to be a lot more intimate that way. These shows are clearly wanting to not be content with the facts on the ground and to be like, something big is stirring. (laughs) All these universes are about to go crazy. (laughs) And so they are burdened a bit by that as standalone stories. So I get that and – yeah. I'll just, I won't hold my breath as long as far as Loki being prestige, a prestige series and just try to enjoy it for what it is as a, you know, yeah. appetizer for the next phases of the MCU. Yeah. I, I tell you what, I, again, I have been very impressed with the storytelling so far. And honestly, this might be in terms of, of this might be Rotten Tomatoes most favorite of our podcasts because mm. I just happened to look up Loki yeah. on, on Rotten Tomatoes, 96%. Mitchell's versus the machines, 98%. So fresh. So, yeah, there's a reason why. I mean, we sort of have gushed over both of these shows in a way, um, but I think there's a reason for that. There's They are very high quality. And, yeah. and we don't know whether Loki is going to hold up to that, uh, throughout its entire run, but I am I am actually kind of looking forward to any season potentially rolling around and maybe seeing WandaVision or Loki or even Falcon and the Winter Soldier in some of these nominations because these are very creative stories that are being told in a relatively family-friendly way, which I really appreciate. These are these are good, good series that you can bring your family together and watch. And that's kind of encouraging. It's, it's a very refreshing thing after breaking bad and game of Thrones and yeah. the Americans, all great shows, but man, were they problematic? So to have, to have some of these shows that both have the upper echelon quality in terms of aesthetic value, in terms of what they're trying to do in terms of their ambition and to still keep it within a Disney plus audience that's pretty cool. And ultimately to come back to a analogy used earlier in the episode here, it's, it's as though we're getting that pepper steak and it's cooked perfectly, but I'm just not loving the chutney choice on top. <laughs> Maybe the mango wasn't all there. Maybe they tried a different fruit. It's like, that's not my favorite thing you did there to tie in, but boy, the steak was good. Uh, it's a first world problem. We're it's talking a- about something that's really fun really entertaining and we're like yeah but was it like a 9.7 out of 10 or was it just like a 8.1 out of 10 uh can't watch anything it's just 8 out of 10 we do live in an age where we could get spoiled by some of the entertainment there's so much out there and inherently the quality for some of it is going to be pretty good yeah and it, it it's a good problem to have but it's also a real problem to have like that's no small part of why I will spend way too much time, sometimes 30 to 40 minutes, just scrolling through Netflix and scrolling through Hulu and scrolling through YouTube and rechecking the video games that I've got downloaded because it's which one is going to – what mood am I in at this moment and which one of these pieces of entertainment is going to be that 9 out of 10 for me right now? Yeah, I like those things but – they're only going to be a 7 out of 10 for me right now. That's not enough. I need that 9 out of 10 right now. 
you could argue in a way that this we sometimes in our entertainment culture, and this actually gets back to Mitchell versus the machines, potentially, we are becoming a little bit Dante-esque in our gluttony for entertainment, Uh. both in the terms of that we consume a lot of it. But that we are really looking for the best of the best of the best. And we we have these itches that need to be scratched by these these devices, you know? Yeah. And I think that you could argue that there's there's an element of gluttony involved Oof. there. You know, that's not a podcast that'll sell, but that's what <laughs> I'm gonna do. That's that's some deep richness right there. <laughs> There you have it, Loki, our little bit of Loki preview. What did you think about episode one? Or are you listening to this in the future and you're just ready to laugh at how wrong we were <laughs> with our predictions or our guesses? Or, you know, maybe maybe this is, maybe you're listening to this because Loki just won an Emmy. and Or 12. You know, you, or 12. And you can congratulate Paul for you know, his wishes being fulfilled and you can denigrate me for saying that I don't think this is going to end up being prestige TV. Yeah. Yeah. The mango chutney, just not good enough. Not good enough. Of course, the place to do that, you could do it in our blog comments. You could leave us a review and put your notes in a review on iTunes or wherever you like to leave your reviews for podcasts. Or you could tell us on Twitter. I'm at Jake underscore Roberson. I am at AC Paul. But now it's time for the most least important thing. We've arrived at the most least important thing. It's alternatively in the same exact moment, Paul's most and least favorite segment. That's why we call it the most least because sometimes things are both. And it's Paul's most and least favorite segment because it means we're at the end of another episode. And also it's his least favorite because usually it means I've kept him and he just thought, oh, I finished two segments. It's time for me to go and wait, there's one more. Dang it. I always forget about the most least important thing. And that's why it's the way I love to wrap up every single little show of ours. Eventually, you're just going to spring on a couple more segments that I'm not even going to be aware of until we're actually doing the show. That's right. Starting us off today is me. My molehill to turn into a mountain is actually a pet peeve of mine about the National Basketball Association and its rules and the way a certain part of the game has been played for a couple of years, Paul. And it's a molehill that I've long felt was a mountain, and it turns out I just learned that the NBA agrees with me, that this is actually a mountain that needs to be moved, and they're working on moving it, Paul. What are they doing? What is this? That's right. The NBA Competition Committee is exploring a rule change to restrict unnatural jump shot motions. (laughs) Take that, James Harden. I knew I knew James Harden was going to be coming up here because he and kicked his leg out, right, to he, get the fouls. He absolutely does. James Harden has the best beard in the NBA, and you know I'm, I, I'll you give him points for that. Beard. Great yes. beard game. His jump shot game, he literally, no matter where he's taking a jump shot, acts like he's trying to chest kick the defender with his legs as he's shooting the ball. And then they call a foul on the guy playing defense. When James Harden kicks his legs out, 
shoot, you know, he's taking guys' kneecaps off. He's kicking them in the yeah. nether regions. Yeah. He's putting his footprint in their chest, and then the refs blow the whistle, and he gets a four-point play. As and if the 70 points that he scores a night is not enough. Right. And it, it's made it, – James Harden is almost unwatchable when he's playing that way because – 35 of his 70 points will be at the free throw line. One free throw at a time. And, you know, it also drove me crazy. Russell Westbrook, in, like in particular, is really good at this move, but other guys do it, where they blow past their defender and they have an easy layup. And then they stop and jump backwards to shoot a little floater and jump backwards into the defender and then they call the foul on the defender who's just standing there like, yep, I got beat. This is embarrassing. They're going to make the shot. And then they're not in the way of the shot except that he decides to jump exactly backwards into them and make his little floater and get a free throw for something that's completely ridiculous. The, the defender didn't foul him. He jumped into the – it's ridiculous. It's absolutely ridiculous. <sighs> But the NBA Competition Committee is reviewing it and is looking to implement changes as soon as the next season. None of this NFL or MLB nonsense where they test rules for five years before they bring them in. They're going to bring it in in 2021-2022 season, Paul. You know, maybe if they do that, they, they might address traveling someday. Maybe so. Maybe so. I'm not holding my breath, though. If they uh, if they handle this particular rule like they did traveling, I don't think you're going to see much change. Plus, are there going to be a lot of refs that really call a lot of a lot of fouls on on James Harden for his kicks? I mean, he's well, just don't fan. call anything. Yeah, I would be fine if they just left it. I don't care is- if they call the foul on him. Just don't give don't call a foul like I, I don't care if they don't call a foul against him, but don't call a foul for him. Yeah. Well, yeah, it would be. Let them play the game. Ugh, it's ridiculous. But, you know, without traveling, Paul, you wouldn't get all those awesome LeBron James double spin, triple juke dunks. He needs like oh, seven steps for those. Those, <laughs> those are some pretty great dunks, though. They really are. <laughs> Paul, what do you have for us today? All right. You know what, Jake? I'm going to take us back full circle to where we started this conversation. I'm not sure how much of it is actually going to make it onto the podcast, but we All started right. talking about Lord of the Rings. We did. And how we read it as children and how your child is reading it even as we speak, maybe even as we speak. Quite literally, most likely. I have, uh, I have also found a new love, oh. oddly enough – of reading children's books, like old children's books that I grew up with. Um, I, uh, Do you consider you know, Lord of the Rings a children's book? It's it's not a children's book, but we read it as a, as a child. Okay, got it. All right. so, so I, You're just I, making a segue. I used to be – that's exactly right. That was a professional segue, Jake. Yeah, I mean, it didn't really fit, but that's fine. Keep going. Oh, my goodness. So anyway, I, I was a big reader growing up. I loved reading. As I have grown, I have found myself, because of my job, you know, I watch a lot of TV. I watch a lot of movies. I find myself playing video games. And sometimes I just discovered, like, a month ago that even though I find myself gravitating toward those things, I would actually much rather read a book 
And it kind of surprised me a little bit how little I've been reading. So I've been sort of going back to, to some of my favorite books that I read as a kid. And I just wanted to bring this up here. It's called The River and Green No. It's the third book in the Green No series. And if you have not read the Green No books, they're very languid. They... Jake, you'd hate them because they take their time and they really sort of unpack this scenery. But my daughter, when I would read them to my daughter when she was growing up, she loved them because they just took her to the English countryside. The Green No books are essentially about this castle um, and the children who go visit there. And there are there are treasures there and ghosts and walking shrubbery and gorillas and all sorts of really interesting stuff. But it's really just about the mood that you have. So I thought what I would do is one of the reasons why I just love these books is sometimes you just find that they have some kind of beautiful language in them. And I sort of forget how much I enjoy just the written word. And so I thought I would just read a little cut just a couple of lines. Oh, so an audiobook by this Paul. This is right. Me. This is story time with Paul. Oh, grandpa with grandpa. Is that exactly. what, is that what your grandchild's gonna go? Because that'd be really cute. It's grandpa. <laughs> so the river at Green No is about this river that runs by Green No. Is it N-O or K-N-O-W? It is K-N-O-W-E. Oh snap. Green No. Uh, but these three children are visiting this castle, essentially, but they're exploring the river. The book is all about them exploring the river, and they are going out at dawn to sail the river and have adventures. All right. And so Your this ASMR voice, I'm listening. This line, this line just sort of struck me. It was dawn without sun or wind. The sky was not crowded with cloud shapes. It was just pale. The water like tarnished quicksilver and the leafy distances like something forgotten. The canoe moved in a slow, closed circle of silence so that everything that was near enough to come within the magic circle was singled out for the imagination to play with. Such were the twisted pollard willows, striking attitudes along the bank, many of them old and bent like old men, or more correctly like old men's coats, for they gaped open and were quite hollow inside, looking, as Ping remarked, Ready for demons. Oh, snap. That last line came out of nowhere. <laughs> See, doesn't that make you want to read it? I'm all in. I was already feeling kind of like loving the language and it was soaking over me. Had my basically had my eyes closed, was just letting it wash over me. Paul's <laughs> dulcet tones. And and then the demons came out of nowhere, and I was like, I'm all in. <laughs> Yeah, so that was story time with Paul. Sometimes there's just nothing as beautiful, I think, as a well-written paragraph. And when you read it out loud to your children, there's a magical circle that surrounds even that. That's a beautiful sentiment. But now all I can think about is Paul having written his own wedding vows and saying to his wife, my darling... (laughs) You are even more beautiful than a well-written paragraph. <laughs> that's it, folks. We're out of here. That's that's leave it on a high note. Thank you for listening to Pop Culture with Fanboy and Know It All. I will actually say one more thing about audio. Is there, are, is there an audiobook for the, the? Have you looked to see? For I haven't, looked, but it would be a great audiobook. 
Because oh. one of one of my favorite memories from college was spending the summer listening to audiobooks as I played Need for Speed Hot Pursuit. <laughs> and I read a, I read like five books that way. I Just don't know if Green No and and Need for Speed really go that well together. Oh, for me they do, Paul, because oh. my I can with these video games like Madden or Need for Speed, I can shut the brain. I don't need to you just need quick twitch reactions, right? You don't need to be really involved in a story. And so I can just turn on Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy or Harry Potter or Lord of the Rings and I can listen and actually and take in a story as I am dusting cops on dusty highways That's, in Arizona. That is wrong. Let me just say that is just <laughs> completely and utterly wrong. Uh as one of my favorite philosophers from the early 20th century says, Paul, it's the best of both worlds. <laughs> Chilling out, take it slow, and then you rock out the show. It's the best of both worlds. <laughs> oh, my goodness. Hannah Montana. <laughs> yeah, it was not really early 20th century. I said 21st yeah. century. So I don't know. Let the record I show. I said early 21st I'm century. I'm not sure. I'm not sure. Definitely yeah. did. Yeah. Ah, that's it for us this time, folks. As always, if you miss our hijinks in between episodes, you can probably come commit some hijinks with us on Twitter. I'm at Jake underscore Roberson. I am at AC Paul. Until next time, though. You know, it doesn't really fit, but I'll catch you on the flip side. (laughs) Bye. It's funny how much... Even with all my weirdness, my own outro annoys me. It doesn't make sense to say, until next time, I'll catch you on the flip side. I know. I know. They're both standalone. They're both standalone salutations. And I I lump them together. But now I've done it too many times that my brain can't stop. stop. You have to do it. It's a a tradition now. I was going to mention it 101 episodes ago, but I failed to. (laughs) You had your chance. Hey, you know what? Go take an ice bath, Paul. You deserve it. Man, oh man, I am sweltering. All right. Good deal. Talk to you with you later. Bye. Bye.